Hello and welcome to the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast, where we listen into a group of rural firefighters as they give their opinions on the challenges they face both on and off the fireground. We release a new episode every week, so please hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this with your fire family and friends. Now on to this week's episode, where as always, we ask the question, are you DTFF? Hello and welcome to the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast. My name is Carl and tonight I'm joined by three members of my firefighting family. I have Ash. Hello. I have Scott. Hey there. And I got Todd. Hello. And uh, tonight we've got a really, really special guest. We're going to kind of just roll straight into it. Um, Really, really good episode. Um, We are talking with Dr. Nick Sparrow. Uh, Dr. Nick Sparrow is an emergency room and EMS physician from Nelson, B.C. He's also the ATAC Canada Fire and Medical Director and the CEO and founder of CURPA, which is the Kootenai Emergency Response Physician Association. Uh, Nick responds as a primary care physician to 911 calls to administer pre-hospital care. He's changing the game one mind at a time, and it is an honor to have him on the show. Um, So without further ado, we're just going to get cracking and get straight into it. Dr. Nick Sparrow, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me, guys. You know, it's been a long time coming, mate. We uh, Obviously, we came out and seen you at the uh, ATAC conference, and I know we'll get into that here in a second, but um, it's uh, it's been a long time since we've, at least myself, have seen you. I know the boys came out again at the RTAC um, conference there as well for the, for the scenario-based stuff. They brought back some really good material. We've talked about you a lot on the podcast. Um, you're doing some great, great things, and so we really appreciate the fact that you've had some time um, to, to dedicate to, to popping on and, and having a chat about the things you're getting into because they're really important, at least we feel so. So, uh, Nick, if you wouldn't mind, mate, just uh, give yourself a little bit of an introduction. Yeah, so hi, everyone. Um, my name's Nick. I work as a full-time emergency physician in a little town in Nelson, British Columbia, up in the mountains. I say it's probably the best place in the world. Um, <laughs> I have a bit of a funny accent. I'm originally from the UK, um, and emigrated to Canada about 10 years ago and sworn allegiance to the Canadian flag. And I've moved over here um, and have a wife, six kids and a dog uh, and love EMS and the emergency services. Beautiful. Nick, <clears throat> one, of the things that, uh, one of the things that we were talking about before again there and one of the stories that really stuck with us was um, the, the bits and pieces you were talking about about around the Kerpa kind of side of things. Um, would you mind kind of talking a little bit about that for us? Yeah, um, uh, it's, it's quite a big topic because it's, um, yeah, it's, there's a long story to it, but um, Kerpa is essentially, it stands for Kootenai Emergency Response Physicians Association. Uh, and it's a charity that um, has existed really for the last three or four years in Nelson. And basically, Um, We have a board of directors and and I volunteer to head out to the most critical 911 calls to assist the emergency services. I'm not there in any way to replace them. I'm just there to help back up the emergency services. Uh, So I respond to the highest priority 911 calls where there is a true imminent threat to life. Um, And so in the past... um, Sort of five and a half, six years, I've responded out to about 430-something 911 calls. Um, and so like you guys, you volunteer with uh, a fire department. I volunteer 
um, as a physician going out to 911 calls, helping in the community. So how did that start for you, Nick? How did you, how did you kind of, because you were, you were a bit of the spearhead for this, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I founded the charity. And at the moment, I'm the only physician responding. But I hope, I hope that changes. But, you know, where, where you're born makes a big difference to how you see the world. And in the UK, there has been 60 years of physicians being involved in EMS. So that is longer than the BC Ambulance Service has even existed. Um, and the UK is kind of an interesting country um, with all the sort of effects of the war, um, is a very altruistic country. And so a lot of people volunteer their time to help out in difficult situations. And there was one physician uh, in the UK who kind of founded Basics, which is the British Association of Immediate Care, um, where they actually knew that loads of people were dying on one particular stretch. I think it was in in Wales on a on a <clears throat> highway, um, and they said, "Look, how can we help people in our community?" And they would dispatch a doctor alongside the emergency services to help. Um, so you know, when you watch things like One Hour to Save Your Life, and you can see all these Hems doctors flying in with paramedics and charity organisations, that's where it's all come from. Um, and it's it's actually phenomenal what's being done in other countries. Um, and so I was brought up with that, and quickly before coming to Canada, um, I had sort of gone through the basics training and was asked to join, but. Um, I'd already decided I was moving to Canada and I was heading to South Africa to do some trauma experience and some EMS experience. Um, and so that's kind of where where it all started from because I'd been existing in a model where it was just um, it was just known about that physicians would be joining the emergency services on particular calls and and, and basics is a charity that was started in 1977. In fact, the year I was born, so you, you can work out it's like coming out 43 years old. So the the experience that they have of that particular model is just huge in in some other countries. So how have you found, <clears throat> obviously, because starting something um, so, so kind of out of the box in an area that is just not used to it, how did you find that? Uh, others have adapted to seeing you on scene and having this kind of extra pair of hands which is so much more qualified to to do these extra things how have you seen that um escalate and, and roll through since you started to now um the the honest answer is <clears throat> there's been lots of support for it um there's also been lots of resistance um so people are like well why do you need a doctor showing up on the scene what do they know um you know um, really yeah it's, it's kind of interesting I've, I've i've sort of had quite a few negative experiences um but you know you know like um you just keep yeah i'm uh, good old winston churchill said never 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 give up um and uh, I, I honestly think that the um the people that I go and help are, are really appreciative of being there. What other people think, um, I I obviously care what other people think, but I know deep down why I'm doing it, and I'm, I'm I've sort of thought about it many times and know that I'm doing it for the patient. So 
when when you kind of get negative comments um, flying, you just sort of go, well, okay, yeah, you know, maybe we there's some things we can work on to try and help with that, or, or maybe it's just other people's sort of problems with um, sort of turf war. And unfortunately, as as anyone who works in the emergency services, there sometimes can be a bit of turf war, which unfortunately boils down sometimes to egos um but at the end of the day um as an emergency service i love the 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 second word in the name because service is about serving other people and um that's very much what i want to do and what we need to as um emergency services do for the community and also for each other like fire should be serving ambulance ambulance should be serving fire we should be serving our police officers our correction officers um you know like uh, we should be one big happy family working together to to save lives and and that's you know if you come to any of the conferences i say you know like i say the same thing over and over again um we we all need to be working together and when we do man is is it ever sweet yeah it's a it's a massive massive difference i know from um from a perspective of again the, the volunteer service after we came um to the atac conference we it opened our eyes to so many different ways that we could all work together and we've now reached out to different areas obviously todd bnbc ambulance um and then uh we've got other members which again are in different uh, different roles um that we know locally for law enforcement and things like that but we've really tried to spread that around at least in our area um, and it seems to be sticking so far. Uh, honestly, I do want to just kind of quickly go back and touch on the fact that people are being negative about this in any way. I think that's insane. If it was me and I'm having an issue which requires a doctor and you're going to show up and save me, I'm pretty sure. I don't think the people have an issue. I think it's the other but services. But even there, <laughs> even there, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't get it. That is, uh, go ahead. You got something there, Todd? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, uh, you know, in my career, I've seen a lot of Kind of people just get rubbed the wrong way where you know people lose lose track of the of the primary focus of why we're there it's <clears throat> patient focused care like, that's why we're there that's why we're all there that's why the fire department responds that's why the ambulance responds we're going there for the patient and people need to need that reminder that you know put away little issues that you may have against another agency mm-hmm. we are all still there for that one person so that's why i absolutely love what um uh, Nick preaches is, is the it's that's that's it it's it's we're we're a, an emergency services group that is servicing the community we're there to help people. I think the biggest thing that uh, um, I took away from the ATAC conference is we as a group and when, when, if I say we I mean fire ambulance um, RCMP. Uh, and then now yourself with what you guys are doing up there, we are providing pre-hospital care and anybody that doubts bringing a physician, which is your hospital care out to the field. Um, it's like, like you said, it might be pride or whatever, getting in the way ego. Um, I mean, any way that we can bring that level up, everybody should be on board yeah and i mean don't get me wrong we've not had um it's not that we haven't had support we've had a lot of support from um like to in to be able to get where we're at which which is great but it, it is interesting that you, you do get negative um comments even the fact of you know 
having lights and sirens on the truck uh, i've had people shaking their head at me as i go past um and sort of had to stop the vehicle on my way home and sort of have a conversation with them like you know what's what's the issue and, and often the issue is you have a loud siren and you're going through a residential area with your siren on i'm like well one in 10 calls that I go to, someone is going to die, regardless of the amount of care that we give. That's that's our current statistics, because I only go to life-threatening 911 calls. Um, and, you know, it, it's very interesting, because you see what other emergency services groups have to deal with, with some of the, you know, um, public interface that people just really don't understand. One, the job that we do. Um, secondly, some of the, you know, uh, work that we have to do in order to get there um, and even kind of the types of calls or things that are happening in the commu community because they're just they're just you know in sometimes in their own little world about um, themselves and get annoyed when a siren goes past their house but actually you know it's a person they might even know who's there in cardiac arrest or it's their kid trapped in a car um, so I think sometimes it's kind of an educational piece as well. Are, yeah. are there others like you, like you, are there others, not British people, um, <laughs> physicians, are there other physicians in Canada or even in North America that do something like similar to you? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking North America, then definitely. I mean, there's, there's programs in the States. I mean, it, um, physicians involved in EMS is, is a big thing down there. So there's the MD1 program. Um in Canada, though, I don't think I'm aware of another physician who is responding at the same frequency of calls. I think there used to be one up north, um, and I'm not sure whether they're still responding. They may well be. And obviously, you've got physicians responding with search and rescue teams. But I don't think there's a ground a ground facility providing kind of medical support um, in the province. And I, I, think, I think it's fair to say we're the first charity... Uh, physician response um, organization in BC, uh, for sure. I mean, obviously, we're not far away from Alberta. You have STARS, but they're predominantly uh, air-based. So they fly uh, physicians and paramedics and paramedics and nurses, different combinations. I think it's mainly paramedic and flight nurses. Um, but I mean, if you just go on to the internet and type in, you know, physician EMS response, it's it, it is um, it is increasingly more common, and we'll. I think it is the model of the future because you have a lot of physicians uh, in medical direction as well. And I'm like, if you've got a physician in medical direction, whether it's in the fire or whether it's in the ambulance service, like no better training than to actually put them on the streets because you know then when you look at it, let's say a a run sheet from a firefighter or a paramedic and you go well why didn't you do this i mean um or you know why didn't you measure the temperature or whatever it may be um when you're actually on a scene trying to run a call with a critical patient the last thing you're really that focused on is the temperature unless they're obviously like a hypothermic arrest or been trapped in the snow for a period of time it's the last thing you're worried about recording um and so being on the street and running calls with the crews um for me, like I'm like put 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 your medical consultants, put your medical directors, get them on the street serving, because um, that's how that's how you uh, jack up uh, an EMS system. In my opinion, that's a medical term, jack up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 
<clears throat> I just, I just, uh, I wanted to touch on the fact of this as well is all of this initially, this all started out the back of your car, right? Like, and, and not saying that in a negative way at all. This was you, your money, your time, your effort doing these things for other people because you've seen there was a need for it and, and you did that yourself, right? I, I know that you've upgraded vehicles now to something a little bit larger, a little bit more upscale, but talk a little bit about how you actually started this, this process. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, uh, when I moved to B- BC, I lived in uh, Seashelt um, on the Sunshine Coast, and there were a number of high-profile incidents. Um, like, I'd just come back from South Africa. I did um, two months in Johannesburg General Trauma Unit, so saw, you know, like 100 people who'd been shot or stabbed, and um, or 50 people who'd been shot and stabbed, and then another 50 other major trauma recesses, because to get into the Joburg general trauma unit like you have to have major trauma it's not like I've twisted my ankle it's full-on uh trauma and not that there's anything wrong with twisting your ankle but um (laughs) in a trauma unit you don't necessarily want to be seeing that that goes to the emergency department but uh, the trauma unit was just major trauma um and so when I came like I I spent a month with Netcare 911 with Santon Fire in Johannesburg um, and we were riding out to, you know, the most critical 911 calls. So helicopter crashes, transformer explosions with multiple people injured, you know, shootings at shopping malls, gas stations, stabbings, you name it. Like, we went to it. Uh, and then moved to the Sunshine Coast where I was doing emergency and family medicine as well. And I was sort of giving a few talks to first responders in the hospitals about gunshots, stabs and... Uh, and then ironically, uh, there was a stabbing, actually not a stabbing, sorry, a multiple shooting at Christensen Village, which was a nursing home just round the corner from where I had, um, where I was working and, uh, and doing a clinic at the time. And I heard all these sirens. I was like, something big is going on. And just like the hairs on my back of my head were going up. Not that I've got a lot of hair, but, um, and I was like, I need to go and see if I can offer some help. And, and there'd been like a multiple shooting at Christensen village. Um, so I was able actually to go in with the paramedics. I did have some kit and they had nurses there. So they have medication. I was able to treat, uh, one of the gunshot victims and until sort of the helicopters flew in. And I was like, you know, there is a role for physicians to be involved in the care of patients. And I knew this and was trying to find a way of doing it. And I said, right, you know, like I need to be involved and help out the EMS because I was, I was seeing a number of cases coming through the eMERGE where I was like, I think I could have helped a little bit earlier if I was able to go to the scene. Uh, so I spoke to the ambulance service or the BC EHS, um, BC Emergency Health Services, and actually um, Seashell Fire, so big big shout out to them, uh, and they actually um, gave me a fire pager. And so I started with basically a fire pager. There was a, an ambulance pager that was um, sort of said, we'll get you an ambulance pager. Um, I didn't actually get an ambulance pager in the end, but I had um, like a fire pager. And so I would respond alongside uh, Seashell Fire as a doctor, just in my own car with, you know, some bits of kit that I felt confident that I could use and defend the use of. Um, And basically sort of AD, 
um, and some drugs and, and, and obviously some basic medical kit. Um, and that was 10 years ago. Um, so I responded on the Sunshine Coast for about three and a half years. So if you look at the number of years I've been responding um, in the province, it's, it's actually more like sort of nine, nine years of responding. So it's the it's crazy. I mean, even you know we're sat here all, and you're you're talking about the fact that you've responded to helicopter crashes recently and and gunshot mass mass casualties. And obviously, we we did want to touch a little bit on that as well. But um, you know, you've again, it's that if you want someone to show up to help you, don't you want the most qualified person to be there at the time? And that is not knocking anybody else who's going to be there. You want as much care as possible at the time to do. Um, so again, I just those negative comments. Um, <clears throat> let's. Uh, so you mentioned there, obviously, as well, that you had worked a lot with fire. And yeah, again, when we were out at the ATAC conference, again, that big portion of um, everybody needs to work together. Um, yeah. And it was a very big push of yours. And again, it's definitely been one of ours since then, that kind of, you know, teamwork aspect. How do you how do you feel uh, or how do you see or what would you like to see happen moving forward with with the different chains of EMS working together? How do you see them responding to calls? Do you do you hope that it's more along the lines now of what you would prefer? Your doctors are actually getting pagers for fire and, and EMS. How would you like to see it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of a that's a big, big question. Um I think ultimately, um, obviously, I, I, my eyes, are, my eyes are physician eyes at the moment, and you know, like, yes, you need qualified people at calls, but you also need people who have been appropriately trained. Uh, like, so there's some very skilled physicians out there, but put them in the situation of EMS or you know, trying to do CPR on a living room floor. And they're just completely phased. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of training that's required to um, sort of step into the realm of EMS. But really, what you want is a lot of passionate people about getting out there and saving lives and working together. Um, and you know, the the passionate person will be able to outwork and outsmart some of the smartest people um, who who are involved with EMS and not passionate about it. Do you, you see what I mean? So um, whatever service you're in, fire, police, ambulance, you just want people who are really passionate about getting out there and making a difference. Um, you know, some of the, um, you know, um, like what police, what fire are able to do, what ambulance are able to do is all written in legislation. So it's, it's sort of above, um, above what I would be able to to change but ultimately at the end of the day what you want to see is the most critical patients in british columbia um get given the best care possible and how do you do that in rural areas where you may have one or two ambulances who may um be headed off to another critical call and you know, you're having to dispatch the fire department or police department to go and help at those calls. So there are basic bits of equipment that are going to save lives. And that needs to be that needs to be available to the community, in my opinion. Um, and there's there's not that many 
not that many things, but you think about Narcan, how quickly that rolled out when we had all the sort of drug overdose issues. I think epinephrine is an important one for patients with anaphylaxis in rural areas. Um, like I've seen a number of cases where you're kind of like, wow, it'd be great to have got that epi in 20 minutes earlier. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really doing the basics well um, and, and training, you know, I have this little saying, train hard, fight easy. Um, and, and really all, you know, training together and working together. Same with like major incidents, like is the fire departments, are they are they aware of major major incidents, carrying tags, how are we going to do this? And we, we kind of talked about this on the RTAG course, I think, didn't we? Um, yeah. you know, how prepared are we if you're the one resource on there, whether you're police or fire or ambulance, how well are you able to communicate that major incident to all the other emergency services? Yeah, absolutely, Nick. I uh, one thing that really impressed me was when we were at the um, well, both the the ATAC conference, but also the uh, the RTAC was uh, is the high fidelity sims that you guys provide there for all the uh, all the people attending the course, because that just really reinforces what you're talking about. That you know the people that are really switched on and want this, that's the best way to get the bang for the buck. It's the best type of training in those high fidelity sims. Think outside the box, learn from it work as a team, get those uh, multi-agencies working together. And that's what a lot of things that we're doing now is over here is we're talking about that. Like from that now, I know uh, Scott, they've they've started to work on a, uh, an MCI kit for their trucks. Uh, we've got some conversation going uh, between our departments for the future here and uh, bringing in on the ambulance as well, doing some larger base scenarios. Um, yeah, a whole, whole variety of, of things we've been talking about slowly, slowly getting implemented. Um, and then a side note with, uh, like a lot of the stop the bleed training that Scott and I do, um, getting out there teaching, uh, community centers, general public, but also law enforcement, um, just that extra level of high fidelity sim. Like we do our own spin on it. Uh, and Scott's really good with his team for that. And yeah. it's, it's, it's good. It's a lot of fun. We're getting a lot of props for it. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, just to big up you guys, Scott and Todd, for those of you who are listening, they ran the um, multi-casualty incident that we did on the RTAC training. And I have to admit, it was like the best MCI that we had. We, <laughs> we had some tops and we put, oh. here's, our, here's our, you know, reds and here's our greens and here's our yellows. And we put them on tops in different areas around a, a scene. There was, I don't know, maybe 10 patients we had. Uh, and it absolutely rocked it. And I, I remember, I still think even now, like, right, how, how as, um, and I'm talking fire here, like, how does the fire department plan for this if you're not all carrying, you know, tags and stickers? Or why not a bunch of different colored tarps? Like, here's a red tarp, all the red people are going to go there. Here's a yellow tarp, they're all going to go there. And here's a green tarp. Like it, it's quite easy, and then, and then you know, putting your putting your main kit that you're going to need, and by definition, you're only going to need your life saving medical kit at the red. Um, like that's where you stage all your you know skilled first responders or your medical kit, and then you can sort of disseminate it. And I was kind of like, it's been chewing in my head because ambulance uh, in British Columbia have a very good system. Does the fire department have as uh, um, as an, a robust system for MCI as the ambulance service? And if the answer is no, um, then how can we bridge that gap? 
Um, and that, that sort of stuff that churns through my mind, having seen that, it sort of was replayed a number of times. Yeah, we're. it was actually funny when we got back from there, um, I looked on our truck, on our rescue truck, and it actually we actually happened to have a, a, a big red tarp and a big yellow tarp, and it was totally nice. a fluke. So, so that's become our MCI, our, our MCI tarps now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be great to, um, you know, like talking another podcast and stuff, maybe even see, um, you know, a video of like just pulling casualty, multiple casualties out of a car and, and the effect that it has of just designating tops and putting them on tops. I mean, it wouldn't be a hard, hard one to do because it was quite, I wish I'd actually got a video of that because it was just slick and smooth. And I was like, um, it, it was really the zoning people into set zones that made the difference, I think. And obviously you guys were skilled at it, but, um, I think actually having visual aids of where those patients need to go is so, so important because then there's not, you know, like, oh, where are we going to put this patient? And, you know, if you think about it, the multi-casualty incidents classically in rural areas are motor vehicle accidents and you often have two vehicles that are one side of the road and the other side of the road. To be able to sort of move them into a centralised uh, area with a controlled way of moving them rather than just dragging them, um, like, uh, I think, for me, it just makes sense. So when you show up on a scene, you see this big red top, and really that's where um, the paramedics need to be going first. But it obviously you need to know how to correctly put them on the red top or the yellow top or the green top. But I mean, that's just training. It's so you got something. Yeah, and I uh, I totally agree. Like we we're talking about um, uh, just. So not not really even using tags in the, for the fire service, but just just the ribbon to start because we have the manpower to draw from so quickly and easily uh, when we respond to an incident like this. Whereas in our smaller communities, the ambulance many times it's the one the one crew pulling up for mm -hmm. the first thirty, maybe even forty five mm -hmm. minutes. So yeah, they're very correct. strapped. So if we can work together and and work as a group and assist them and have our game face on for for how to assist with triaging and then placing those tarps and having a casualty collection point and bringing those those um triage patients in uh for secondary that's it's really beneficial and you know scott's been brainstorming away and we've been working pretty hard at that we did a little mci talk and triage management a little while ago here as well yeah and i think you know that's where also um <clears throat> like I've, I've just stepped on as um medical director for the R rdck here and basically just sort of helping spinning ideas about some of these things um <clears throat> You know like mci but this would be a great one where you know those who are high up in provincial fire and um within sort of the the province to to be able to have direction as well for you know the the rural fire departments well maybe maybe you know using tops would be a great idea and educating all firefighters in a basic you know mass casualty incident tr training that's almost not necessarily standardized, but maybe should be standardized um, with a slightly different approach. Um, I don't know. Like I, I'm purely spinning ideas. I don't have the answers, but um, and that way it sort of uniformly from the province also comes down. I mean, it would be good to actually get one of the um, like senior people in provincial fire to maybe come on the show and just sort of have a chat, um, you know, and spin spin a few ideas. I, I don't know. I'm, 
again, I'm sort of shooting from the hip. Nice. <clears throat> the the reason that uh, I think a lot of what you've done has landed is because you shoot from the hip. It's a, it's a good thing. Um, thinking outside the box is an extremely important thing that we all need to do more consistently, I think, to get things changing. Scott, you got something? You know, I, I think one thing we uh, we did with our guys, because um, like Todd said, he was doing the... We did a triaging talk, and, and I could just see some of our, our less skilled medical guys were like looking at us like, what are you guys talking about? And they started feeling overwhelmed, and we just basically came back to the uh, the saying. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember that the uh, what the flight nurse's name was. Uh, the uh, the guy from uh, from down. Yeah, Jason. Jason. Jason yeah. yeah, Jason. What Jason said: Does he look sick or not? Yeah. <laughs> and sick or basically, not, yeah. that's what we told our guys. If they're super <laughs> sick, put them on the red tarp. Uh, we could re-triage them later, mm-hmm. but let's start with that. Like if they if you if you think they're they're super sick, red tarp. If not, yellow. And if they can walk, green. And at least it started started them with that thought process, and then. Someone with a higher level of medical training can come and re-triage as we go. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and um, you know, there's, there's, I think we handed them out at the, um, uh, at the RTAC one, but you know, it's just respirations, perfusion, mm-hmm. mental status as well, which also kind of gives you a, a quick sort of run through of who goes where. But you know, if they can walk you out, hit to the green, and then it, you've really just got to only sieve the. Um, the red and the yellows and like I carry a little card in my top pocket um, so that you know if I'm first on scene um, obviously communication is the most vital bit if you look at all the big major incidents that have ever happened it's always comms that falls down um, and usually the right people uh, get to the right place for the most part but um, you know if you had every every firefighter or first responder carrying one of those little cards and i think you can just you know you can type in start triage summary or whatever on the internet and it will bring up this little quick cheat sheet and it it really isn't rocket science and you just go to each patient and like do they have this and if you've got a marker pen you could stick red on the head or whatever it is like you'd have to come up with a um with a plan but that's what i would do if i roll up on scene and like i'm ahead of everyone um then you know make sure it's safe secure the scene and then you know start triage if there's no one else who's able to help you i just and i just wanted to quickly touch as well we do have there's still some kind of stigma that attaches with mci (laughs) and anytime you say mci people do think that we're talking mass shootings we're talking you know all these these other kind of out there situations which can still definitely occur but as you mentioned an mci is you know multiple casualties it can be two vehicles it can yeah. be with just one. yeah it can be one with, with one multiple now. passengers it doesn't need to be anything outside of that it is it can but the plan can still be the same it doesn't need to necessarily fully change unless of course we're starting to talk about active shooter and things like that as well which i know that we've discussed a few times on here too Todd, you got yeah. something on that? No, just exactly. Yeah, so for the term MCI, like it's any any event that overwhelms the available resources, whether it's it's uh, you know one ambulance crew and one stretcher on a car accident that has you know two criticals, that's overwhelming their resources. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, many of our car accidents we go to with one ambulance, two ambulances, you know, that maybe five six patients. Technically, that's what it's called to an MCI, but we're not really phrasing it as that. We just end up speaking off the cuff saying you know we've got five criticals or five reds things like that but uh, when you actually define the term mci uh, that's essentially what it means is is uh, the resources that are overwhelmed at that moment 
Yeah, and I think you know, for the rural hospitals, um, you know, if you're if you're part of a big city, you know, like I don't know where people listen into this podcast, but you may have people, you know, in metro big cities, and we're talking about four people, and then they're like, oh well, you know, that's not really an MCI. Well, um, in in the world of rural in the mountains bc if we have four critical patients that come into our emerge like our hospital is code orange like we're shut down on that um so it's it's kind of in in small rural communities it really has a big impact yeah and uh i I don't think uh i don't think it's talked about enough which is why we were trying to at least uh when we went down to the atac conference there I definitely learned a lot myself um, on that day about <clears throat> how prepared are we, you know? And it was definitely something when we got back that our, our training crew obviously um, really started looking into. And since then, that was obviously where, you know, the, some of these processes and thoughts came out and these conversations have occurred, which is a, why I assume um, the the RTAC situation with our guys um, went, went so well. Although... I, I I am gonna have to open both doors of this room to get Scott and uh, Todd out of here. Now, now, I think. <laughs> they did rock it though. They totally rocked it. I was super impressed. Awesome. Um, so with with the MCI kind of side of things, Nick, is that still because obviously with our attack um, and uh, and that kind of side of things, how do you see that moving forward then with the different? Because I know we had discussed as well, uh, you know, warm zones for um, for firefighters where we were going in helping. So if it was a mass casualty uh, incident, maybe even active shooter, how do you see the roles playing out there differently? Um, so I mean, you've got your straightforward MCI, which is let's say your motor vehicle accident. I think that's relatively easy and i think if you have understanding of you know the um how to triage patients then great and i think you know it that is a question for um provincial fire to sort of say hey what is what is our approach going to be to this so that's that's one side of it and then you look at the active shooter um side of it which is a completely different animal and you're now looking at sort of rescue task force um which is you know, a group of medical providers going into an area where there is a potential threat, but not in the direct, um, you know, indirect potential danger of, of getting shot. But, um, uh, you know, we, talk, we talked about this, that, you know, if you look, go back many years to the Columbine high school shooting, you know, there were multiple incendiary devices um, put to basically injure multiple um, emergency service groups who are attending. So, um, you know, the threat is not just the person who's shooting, but what else they've planned. You know, if they put a bunch of bombs in their car, if they put a bunch of bombs at the front entrance doors, um, bombs in the cafeteria. So Rescue Task Force is a whole nother animal that needs to be... Um, sort of provincially and nationally looked at um like i went down to san diego and did the tactical emergency care course and also helped with sort of organizing a tactical course in the uk um but it it there's a lot of a lot of thought that needs to be put into it um and you know even since our last attack um you know i've been at um 
you know, multiple stabbing, a shooting, um, and um, another couple of incidents with with knives. And it, you know, it does require a, di- a different way of thinking and trying to approach it. Um, and, you know, Vancouver Fire have Rescue Task Force, and you can sort of type in on YouTube Rescue Task Force Vancouver and see what they've done. Um, I don't think a rural model exists for that, but um, certainly um, as kind of a physician involved in EMS, like there's a regular conversation we're having here in Nelson and sort of broaden that, like what, what would be our plan? Um, because we almost did have an active shooter plan, which was thankfully foiled, and that got in the newspaper. Nothing what I'm saying is is um, not in the press already, um, but that could have been um, really like very difficult. Um, so I think you know shows like this where you kind of a group of us all talk about it. Um, that's where kind of ideas come from and other agencies start having conversations. Okay. Yeah. What are we going to do? Um, and you know, like all our local police officers are carrying cat tourniquets and you know, they've had, um, you know, some training that we've offered and, um, attended some of the courses. So like it's, it's happening and, and our response is improving as well. I know that uh, I know that Todd and Scott obviously they, they were saying there they've been doing a big push for stop the bleed um, <clears throat> everywhere and anywhere they can possibly get the message out yeah. really it's been a very very it's been taken very positively um, you know they're, they're looking at doing it for schools and things like that as well um, just everywhere they possibly can spread the message because again, it's that conversation of it's not going to happen in my town. It's not going to happen in my in my on my street. And yet, the yeah. reality is, it can happen anywhere, and it's happening more frequently now as well. Unfortunately, definitely. And you know, like there has to be a contingency plan wherever you live, um, because there is always that possible threat that something's going to happen, um, and. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, I will prepare and someday my time will come. Uh, and and we must prepare, not go over the top and certainly not um, sort of encourage badness to occur, but just to, to be prepared and have those conversations as an emergency service group um, and do our best to serve the community should such an event ever happen. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Absolutely. No. I should give some. No. <laughs> no. No. You just yeah. Just. Well, no. I I think just to add to that, I think we've spoke before that in the fire service, especially in the smaller towns like we are here, like you live in, um, we are that sort of catch all, um, and there there is no real provincial incentive of how we can or should respond to that um like like you said there there is the uh um the task force down in the lower mainland which is great but we don't have anything like that here um any way that we can get some uh regionalized um training together so if there is some sort of event like like that we are the easiest way to muster manpower we can get boots on the ground very quickly we're not going to be hitting that that hot zone but 
maybe we, we, we can get into the warm zone and the more that we are prepared for it i mean we are firefighters first and foremost that's what we have to train put the majority of our 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 efforts towards but if we can get some training some regionalized training together so we are better prepared in the event that something like this does happen i mean these sort of uh things you hope don't happen but if they do that sort of preparedness is key yeah. so anything de that we, de definitely anything and if you if you look at um fire fire has a provincial mandate first first response you know depending on which fire hall actually has first responders part of it but part of that mandate is first response um and you know if you look at a lot of fire calls you know 50 or 60 percent of fire calls nowadays are medical medical calls medical assists so it's it's totally reasonable to um, be talking about plans for active active shooter or um those kind of those kind of things and if you think of you know some of the stuff in the news there was the shooting at a church um is it in pen a salmon arm is it salmon, salmon arm, arm yeah salmon yeah. arm well pendicton yeah. had, had a mass shoot uh not really a it wasn't really shooter, an active shooter it was more targeted but but yeah they yeah. weren't sure what was going on because he there was four people shot so yeah so i think i mean it definitely um you know, some of these topics are bigger, bigger than you or me, but um, it would be very like you, you guys have a, a lot of people that you reach like this is where the conversations need to sort of be happening about, OK, well, um, you know, what what is the what is our response going to be? Because, um, you know, if you look at um, and I'm not an expert at this, but the Columbine shooting um, the sheriff's department, and this was 20 years ago, got fined a million dollars 20 years ago for not. Uh, and I think I'm right in, in saying you can look on, you can look it up. But they they were actually sued as a department for um, part of their response and the decisions that they made mm -hmm. at that particular call. It was like a failure um, to act. And and so you know the whole sort of liability bit also kind of goes through my mind like how how liable as an emergency service group um are we for contingency for our community and i don't, I don't know the answer to that and again this is another sort of spinning spinning ideas but um but um yeah it's sort of i sometimes think about these things yeah after after columbine the i know the law enforcement community changed a lot of their tactics because um, they, they call it immediate rapid deployment now. They used to, yeah. whereas they used to surround the building and wait for the SWAT team to come or the ERT team around here. And uh, they realized they shouldn't be doing that. They should be gathering a couple people together. As soon as you get two officers together, they can go in. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think the fire service or, or paramedics have changed any of their tactics since that time, really. I mean, they're starting to slowly now, like with the rescue task force, but um, law enforcement made huge bounds or as i think fire and ems hs has made small small steps other other provinces and and, and around north america they've uh they're starting to definitely do that <clears throat> bc is a little bit behind the eight ball uh vancouver fire with the rescue task force has definitely uh, picked that up really nicely however yeah. when you start talking rural bc uh we we have a lot of challenges for that and i think that's why the big thing is like nick you mentioned you know just changing that mindset having these conversations uh, on how we need to be prepared 
in our smaller fire departments is super huge because by starting this conversation and spitballing these ideas out here, you know, maybe we can come up with something. And like I said, maybe we end up taking it further and maybe actually have it changed um, provincially. But uh, at least in the meantime, we're starting to have these conversations and change it for the uh, small communities. Yeah. And I think, you know, it like it has big um, financial implications, I think, on on the province as well. I mean, if you look at what body armor costs, you're looking at, you know, 1500 bucks. If you're just for one set of potential body armor, that would be like your level three, a body armor or three, a plus. So stab slash, um, body armor, and then like additional money on top of that for plates to, um, give it rifle protection. Certainly that's, You'd have to have that if you're going to be a rescue task force and then the helmet and then the training. And if you're training, let's say, um, I know 20 of those in your region rurally, that's that's a lot of money. Um, and if you're doing that across the province for a rural rescue task force, you know, the financial implications are big. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I know we've had these discussions before because it is costly and there's a ton of training and liability when you start speaking specifically with the rescue task force. But even if we can have these conversations and start being prepared to, you know, receive these casualties if an event like that happens, because it's going to suck having to sit back and wait until we're told it's it's totally a safe zone uh, and cleared from the police. However, the moment they say that, we can have our teams ready to be deployed and have our triage teams and just start banging things off fairly quickly. And that's where this, these conversations and this preparation is going to really help us for now, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, like um, in areas where it's required, it's happening. So like in Vancouver and um, I'm not sure in the other bigger cities, what their response is. I know in, in Abbotsford, as we heard at the conference, uh, their police force are very, very, forward thinking and and they actually provide the rescue task force um treatment um i think in what's really interesting is kind of what do we do rurally when you've got maybe two or three rcmp officers or um obviously there's more backup coming but you know you're in a rural area um and and maybe fire or ambulance have never actually seen this um kind of incident unfold like how how do we manage that with them and you know when you start learning more about some of these incidents uh or watch some of the the videos you know the bad guys always choose the place the time and and uh, i've always thought about it really really quite carefully um and so and unless we're thinking about it quite carefully and studying some of those cases, we potentially could kill lots of people by by rushing in there. Um, and yes, you know, like the police need to send contact teams in. But um, you know, like I, I think back to sort of that case study we did on Columbine, <coughs> just like how how badly that could have gone if all of those bombs had exploded that they'd set up. Yeah. Yeah, I think one thing. Uh um schools like um you know high schools elementary schools are um they train um lockdown yeah. and and that sort of response you know four or five times a year and we don't train like rural departments don't really train it ever 
So there is definitely, you know, they have their kind of minds wrapped around that, that it could happen. And I, th I think it's something that we should wrap our minds around. Mm -hmm. De definitely. And you, you've hit the nail on the head um, right there. Like, if, you, if you've got schools training five times a year for it, we should be as well. Yeah. Which is which is real, really quite interesting, and not saying that we don't, because you know you're you're doing stop the bleed, and I'm sure many, um, you know, like first responders are learning about tourniquets and all that sort of stuff, and we're working alongside the police and fire, etc. Um, like it's not that we're not training, but um, there's there's probably more of a a kind of uh, overarching system that kind of needs to be implemented so that we're all on the same page. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. The uh, <clears throat> and just on this now, Nick, I just wanted to quickly touch on the the RTAC stuff. If you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit of a rundown on that, just on actually, you know, the, the things that you're doing there with that, um, how people can come and check these things out, get a little bit of education in what we're actually discussing. Because obviously the guys they come and they they loved it and they had a blast, but. Again, this it's a critical piece, I think, in, in this. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit about RTAC, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so the RTAC course basically stands for Rescue, Trauma and Casualty Care. Um, and it's, it's part of a company called the Attack Group. Um, and how I got involved with them is um, they're really no physician... Um, based courses for pre-hospital care that I could find in North America. So I was actually having to fly back to the UK and do training in the UK in order to be able to say, look, you know, like I've gone and done this various different trainings. And, um, and so I would fly back and do the attack course. So advanced trauma and casualty care. Uh, and it's a guy called Mark Forrest, great guy in the UK and his team. Um, and they've been running this course for like 20 years. You can Google it and watch their videos of what they do. But I mean, it's really cutting edge. And I was like, it would be great to bring this over to North America and, and sort of bring some of what they're teaching over here. Um, and so I asked them to come over. They spoke at a big conference. And then out, out the back of that conference, we kind of just started teaching the RTAC course. And it's, essentially, it kind of runs through introduction, kinematics, a safe approach, then onto massive hemorrhage, airway, um, and respiration, circulation, head injury, and others, and kind of uses the march approach. And I know you guys kind of talked talked about that in your previous podcast. Um, but essentially, it's really it's learning how to help the most critically injured patients in our community and work together as a group. Uh, and you know, the train hard, fight easy um, is kind of a it's, it's not necessarily part of the RTAC course, but it really is kind of what, what it stands for because uh, as first responders, as volunteers, as, you know, firefighters, paramedics, physicians, like it is a tough job out there for sure. And, you know, when we work together and uh, we're able to train together and learn from each other, like just great things happen. Two plus two equals six. Um, and that that's kind of really the basis of the course and it is about um saving the most critically injured patients and doing the basics well yeah yeah it's uh it's something that we definitely are trying to push on our side for sure as well and again that RTAC course the guys came back with some really solid knowledge and 
I know that it's helped um, with the things that we're doing moving forward, which is solid. And that's cross department too, you know, across from just not just ours, again, over into BC Ambulance as well as Todd's Fire Department too. So we're trying to slowly spread it on our side, <laughs> yeah. piece by piece. Um, yeah, and you, you know, and it's not it's, it's not just the RTAC that's making a difference. I mean, like what, what you guys are doing is making a difference, like people having conversations about some of this stuff. And, you know, EMS, emergency medical response and medical services, is, is a tough, it is a tough job. Like um, I've said this before, you know, it's quite easy to run calls in an emergency department it's another thing in the field and you know most of us all have lives and you know families and other commitments it's it's a big sacrifice to serve the community and i'm like big up to those people who get out there and help save lives it makes a big difference and we need to be backing each other up not criticizing each other um and you know i go back to like some of the stuff that motivates me uh you know when i was a small kid my two-year-old sister at the time fell into a pond and basically drowned my mum found her blue in the face not breathing and it was a volunteer red cross worker who pulled her out and started doing cpr and now you know she's alive and has a family two kids of her own and you know, like volunteers make a massive difference, regardless of whether you're coming in a red shirt, an orange shirt, a blue shirt. Like, um, so, you know, that's part of my heart for, you know, the volunteers out there. Keep going. You make a difference. <clears throat> Love it. Love it. That's great. Mm-hmm. Nick, uh, I, I know you've got, uh, I know you probably, you got a shift at 10 o'clock tonight, so... Um, we'll uh, we'll start wrapping up, but there is one more thing I just wanted to ask you there as well is if there was anybody else you think that would would uh, would be valuable for us to listen to and valuable for us to um, give a platform to be able to share their message as well for the same things that you're discussing. Is there anyone that you'd recommend coming on and having a conversation about these things too? Yeah, I mean like. I'd be like, get the provincial fire guys on the, <laughs> you know, on the podcast. Get, you know, maybe have someone from Vancouver Fire who'd be willing to have a conversation. Like, ring up Stars and see if they would do, um, you know, do a podcast. Get someone from Alberta to talk about kind of their um, pre-hospital setup because th- th- theirs is quite interesting as well. Um, you know, pull in some of the charity groups who around the world are like responding or get the guys from the MD1 program, which is the US side of physician response. Um, and it, like I kind of Rialto Fire, like I've seen them on uh, on YouTube. Man, are they doing some interesting stuff with cardiac arrest? I'm just like, man, I'd love to hear from these people and just find out what they're doing because they're they're thinking out of the box. Like it's, you know, the cardiac arrest bundles of care, which we haven't even talked about. Like they're seeing increased survival rates, and I'm like, yeah, my mind kind of is blown by some of the other cool stuff that's going on around the world. Like bring them in. 
Love it. <clears throat> we'll have a we'll have a conversation. See if we can get them on, and then uh, maybe we can do some some cross platform stuff. Get you on, and then you can ask some, some oh, questions. I'd love it. I'd love it. <laughs> Let's hope they're listening. Come on, there's got to be someone out there who knows these people. Like, come on, pull some strings, get them on. Absolutely, you'll be you'll be amazed how many people are actually just open to coming on and having a conversation about these things. It just really takes a a quick message here and there for people mm-hmm. to really just say, yeah, oh yeah, no problem. Let's let's set up a time. So um, we'll we'll do it. We'll do it, and we'll uh, we'll see if we can get you on at the same time too. Great. I mean, deep down, this is all about saving lives, isn't it? Like, we're not here to sort of um, blow smoke up our rear ends. Like, let's get out there and save some lives in our community. That's what I. That's what I think is great about what you guys are doing. I appreciate that, mate. Mm-hmm. And again, props to you because uh, you know for for ten years now you've been doing these things off your own back, out of your own pocket. Uh, and again, not even a question as to the morality of it. You're just you're getting out there, you're doing it, and uh, it's phenomenal. And I'm sure the multiple multiple people that you have helped um, treat and save over the many years that you've been um, responding like this would say the same, if not more, um, with regards to the gratitude of which that they have for you for doing what you're doing. And you're trying to change stuff. We heard your message. We heard how passionate you were. And again, we really, really appreciate the fact that you had the time to come on and have the conversation with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I mean, I can't, one, I can't do it on my own, and I feel very blessed that I'm able to do this kind of work in the community and uh, appreciate you guys and your support. So thanks for having me on the show. Cheers, Nick. Cheers, thanks, guys. Boys, thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, appreciate having some future conversations with you about bringing RTAC to our area and uh, maybe some future medical direction. Hey, always willing to spin ideas for sure. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, keep up the good work, guys. Get out there and save some lives. Thanks, Nick. You take care. Good luck tonight. Yeah, take care. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye-bye. And there we have it, Dr. Nick Sparrow. Gentlemen, that was a great conversation. Amazing. Yeah. The um... Couldn't agree more, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I only said it once. <laughs> I held back at a couple moments. It's true, it's true. It's only good. Um, that was a really, really great episode. Um, if you can get down and check out um, any of the RTAC or ATAC conferences, take a look into them. Um, see what's going on there if you are a doctor I'd be amazed if you're listening to this podcast but if you are um, reach out see if you can do the same sort of thing Um, Nick is again he is really trying to change what's going on and uh, he's got a very very important calling which he's extremely passionate about and uh, ready for any opportunity to try and grow that and uh, and share that message so we're very very honoured to have him on the show and we're hopefully going to have him on again as well Uh, boys it's been a good one we're going to wrap her up so uh, let's quickly run through the shout-outs. Motus. Yeah, Motus. Um, we talk about them every week. Um, they came out with uh, the Snagger tool a while back. Scott loves it, talks <laughs> all the time about how, how often he uses it. Um, yes. <laughs> we've, uh, we've, we've, we've been using the Snagger, their wedges. Um, they got some mini spanners they have some other cool stuff coming out um you you've seen our videos nope you've seen our photos i should say (laughs) (laughs) um and just heard us talk talk about it uh it's a really cool deal um if you haven't hop on their uh website or their facebook instagrams they're everywhere um if you like what you see 
you can use <coughs> the discount of DTFF5, which gives you 5% off of any purchase of the product. And uh, yeah, check them out. <coughs> Ozzy Mass, which all of us could do with right now. Scott, Scott's got the corona. Scott's yeah. over here just like major contagious. Yeah, Ozzy um, Mask. Ozzy Mask. Scott. they're sold out right now from the coronavirus. What if they sell the coronavirus? I don't know. An N95. An N95 respirator. Yeah, yeah, I think they're ready for that. Yeah, yeah. they were. Yeah. So we have the Ozzy Masks, <clears throat> M1s, neoprene, F3. really warm, F3 filters. Love it. They're great. Um, yeah, if you want one or you want any of them, go on their website, use the code DTFF, and that will save you 20%. Uh, sorry, I'll save you 35%. 30. 30%. 30%. 30%. 30%. It'll save you some percentages. Enter the code. See how much. Check it out. <laughs> Scott. What? Oh, Todd, stop the bleed. <laughs> Yeah, stopthebleed.org. Uh, you hear us talk about it a lot uh, on this episode as well with uh, Dr. Sparrow, just talking about um, being proactive and getting out there. Uh, carry tourniquets on your person. Uh, learn about massive hemorrhage control. And uh, if you're an instructor or want to be an instructor, check it out. And uh, think outside the box. Train hard. Uh, spin it into whatever you want to do as long as it's uh, pushing the content of the Stop the Bleed course. You can really make it proactive and fun. Yeah, there you go check them out stopthebleed.org and then uh we got the sea rats got oh ash uh yeah so we went down and checked that out when we were in seattle um ignition usa is the uh uh company that makes the sea rat tool so it's this seattle rapid access tool um yeah it's just a soft entry tool um there's the 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 actual tool itself there's a shove knife it's uh, coupled with um o2 shut off uh, gas shut off yeah it's like, Swiss like Army seven knife seven <laughs> kind of functions or whatever so that was the one nice thing that they that they were really hammering home to us is um as as firefighters our pockets are pretty full so if you're going to make one thing it better do a lot of things and this thing does it's a a great tool in in the hands of uh uh, good people. I know we've been getting some some feedback about it, but uh, it's just another tool for the toolbox that does a, a lot of really good things and saves saves time. So uh, check that out, uh, ignitionusa.us. Uh, they're also on Facebook and on uh, Instagram and TikTok. So check that out. Um, discount code for us, DTFF2020, which will give you 20% off. All the percents. So many percents. <laughs> or maybe right. it'll change every 30 seconds when I say it. Mm-hmm. Scott. What am I doing now? Whatever you want. Pick one. <laughs> seminar is coming up. Seminar is coming up. Let's talk about that. May 1st, 2nd, 3rd. Uh, spring seminar in Oliver. Uh, we're well over 20 sessions now. We've got lots of uh, <clears throat> lots of instructors signing up to teach some courses. we got uh, auto extrication, live fire, <clears throat> um, Got some stop the bleed stuff now. Todd and uh, we've been working with some law enforcement guys. We're working on doing a couple of interesting scenarios with that. Um, I don't know. Just it's a fire palooza. That's what I hear. That's what I hear too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot of training on on the Saturday Sunday, and uh, after the main training on Saturday is a uh, we we do a little bit of a party. So that's yeah, good times. It's a good time to get together, learn a bunch of stuff for your toolbox, and talk to other firefighters. 
not getting any certificates out of the deal. We're just literally just spreading a whole bunch of things, spreading knowledge. It's a really good weekend. Yeah, paper burns. Um, <laughs> Secondalarm.org, our friend Matt. Uh, if you're looking to support a good calls and you want more firefighters to hear about how good it is to be a firefighter, go check out secondalarm.org. Um, Matt is there trying to uh, raise awareness <coughs> on all the fun things that we get to do in the service and why people should join up as volunteers to join us um, in our fun, fun, fun. So, uh, yeah, check him out, secondalarm.org. And then Todd. Uh, Legion Engineered. Uh, do a shout-out to uh, Joel's uh, company for um, PTSD awareness. They make a lot of really cool... Um, uh, hats, shirts, hoodies, you name it, stickers, decals, um, and a portion of those proceeds will go to PTSD awareness and support um, to wherever they make the most proceeds uh, from that area of the of the country. Um, it is legionengineered.us. So US, I think. No, you can just no, Google sorry. Legion Engineer. I'm getting, I'm getting things mixed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Legion, Legion Engineer. They're on all the uh, social medias. That's the easiest way to get it. Uh, if you just type into your, your Facebooks, your Instagrams, Legion Engineered, uh, or just search up Joel Struthers. Uh, er- everything is funneled through his own personal account there as well. So uh, check that out. Uh, he actually just released a new uh, pretty cool shirt, the old Crafty Rogue. So mm. ch- huh. check that out. And while you're there, buy his book. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, oh. I, my mine finally came in after a few weeks. Mm-hmm. A little bit of delayed in the Amazons there. Nice. Yeah, I think it went the wrong way down the Amazon River. <laughs> but, anyways, I got it now. It's, it's, so I started reading it. Yeah, Appel, a Canadian in the French Foreign Legion. Yeah, absolutely. That is all we have. If well, you, uh, we can't forget what Bar Boys. Uh, <laughs> right. So wow. when, Carl almost forgot the Bar Boys. Well, to be fair. <clears throat> We were wrapping up with Dr. Nick, and uh, I was talking uh, via our messenger group just as we were saying goodbye. Uh, Nick of the bar variety was sending us a message and just mentioned something like, ah, make sure you let me know when Ash is talking about us. And uh, (laughs) I quickly typed back saying, why don't you just talk about yourself as in dial in? But we were still wrapping up, so... We didn't quite get to give the shout-out um, via the Nick from the bar. But uh, we will quickly. Uh, Brotherhood Academy Radio Podcast. East Coast U.S. Um, chowder-eating guys down down there. Chowder. Chowder. Um, doing the same thing that we're doing. Just they're aggressive. Lock, lots of training. Uh, do uh, episode 1.125 a week, which is <laughs> better than us right now. For some reason, we don't want to release our. <laughs> That's yeah, Carl says he Carl says he likes our new uh, thing I we do. do, but he doesn't want to talk yeah. about it. I do. Thanks, good. Do you want to release it? It's great. It's not. Won't release it. It's not that. It's, it's not that at all. It's already in pre-edited. Actually, I think. I think I just need to post it. Mm. Yeah, stay tuned for that. Yeah. It's going to be really relevant. Thursday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good. But anyway, check those guys out. They're really good. They uh, show us a lot of love. Uh, Talk about uh, tips, tricks, training, and uh, leadership. Yeah. Bar. Bar boys. Any more for any more? That's all I got. Then we'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. Ash. Big thanks to uh, Dr. Nick for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Nick Sparrow, um, he's very inspiring, uh, very, very interesting man with his uh, uh, outlook on how 
we should all be looking at emergency yeah. services. Yeah. Scott. Good night. These guys said it all. It's fact. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Stay DTFF.